Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau, and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today, we had a, a couple of stories in our news briefing about the EU's external relations, or, or rather the lack of external relations. One story about relations with the Mercosur, the countries from Latin America, and another story about whether it makes sense for the EU to pursue its Green Deal ad nauseum, or whether it, it would actually be better for the EU to implement decarbonization policies in third countries rather than at home. Jack, you wrote about Mercosur this morning. Where are we there? I know that you said it's a case of too little, too late. Is it that bad or what, what will the Spanish president try to do and what will it try to, you know, what will it actually achieve? I think that there, there are two things to discuss here. The first is the actual trade agreement between Mercosur and the EU, which has been quite literally about a decade or so in the making. And then there's how that fits in with the wider piece of engagement within the region. As a bit of an aside to this, literally, this, this was almost 10 years ago now, I was involved with editing a special edition of the Cambridge um, Review of International Affairs on the agreement between the EU and Mercosur. This was something that people were discussing at that point still, and we are still here discussing it. There was an agreement in principle in 2019, but since then, neither Mercosur nor the EU have actually ratified it. Both sides have kind of seen 2023 as, as a bit of a window of opportunity year. Of course, this follows Lula becoming president of Brazil again, which has, to a certain extent, facilitated getting a move on with the deal. But then the window kind of is seen as potentially closing next year because of the European Parliament elections. So that will obviously bring in new parliament, potentially new commissioners, which will set the process back from the EU side of ratification. The Spanish presidency is going to obviously be a lot more active on Latin American affairs than is the case currently. So they, they take over the council presidency in the second half of this year. There's, there's already a high-level summit with various Latin American and Caribbean countries organized for July. And as, as part of these different diplomatic efforts, I expect that they're going to want to try and get a move on with the Mercosur Agreement. Explain to us why is this important? I mean, the Mercosur Agreement is important. Uh, well, firstly, it's important for a lot of these Latin American countries because Europe is actually quite a large trading partner for them. But I think it's, it's also more important in terms of the the renewed geopolitical importance of Latin America as we begin the process of transitioning away from fossil fuels. That transition, whether you're looking at, say, switching over from fuel-driven cars to electric cars, or whether you're talking about building out electrical grids to accommodate more renewable energy, or, or whether you're looking at building that renewable energy capacity itself and the storage capacity that goes along with it, it's going to require a lot of raw materials. And substantial reserves of those raw materials, are you can find them in Latin America. So Brazil, which is, of course, Mercosur's largest economy, has the world's third largest reserves, I think, of nickel. Argentina, the other big economy in Mercosur, is a substantial producer of lithium. Uh, Chile is not a full member. It's an associate member, but they are also a very large lithium producer. And by some distance, they are the world's largest producer of copper. And uh, copper is kind of the big one, right? Everybody talks about lithium, but I, I think about copper because um, we're, we're, we're going to be in a situation where copper demand is going to go up quite substantially. Yeah. And we're, uh, it takes a long time to develop these mines. And we're really kind of facing the specter of undersupply there at the moment. Because 
of these raw materials. And that is, I mean, it's just one aspect of it, but that is kind of, for me, the most salient aspect going forward. So I think a lot of it's about building that trust and building the closeness and, um, you know, kind of, I guess you could say the comprehensiveness of that relationship, especially since China has been quite active in Latin America and has really been trying to make inroads there. Yeah, the uh, Chile is the world's second largest producer of lithium. I agree, copper is is going to be the the bigger one in the short term. Lithium potentially the bigger one in the long term, depending on on the global supply situation. Australia is the largest producer of lithium. China has secured lithium stakes in in many countries. It has a free trade agreement as part of a free trade agreement with Australia. It has heavily invested in the Chilean economy, not just in lithium and a few mines, but trade relations between Chile and China have intensified tremendously over the last 10 years, whereas American interest in Latin America has over that period reduced. And I'm being told that the Americans are kind of gone basically in Chile and that virtually... Oh, yeah, no, no. In in Chile, they're they're very much on the back burner. And um, that's partly because of been because of American disinterest and, and partly, I think, because um, uh, there have been, there's been a lot of political backlash against um, the economic model that has existed in Chile since the Americans were very heavily involved in the country during Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship. So that's been another factor in, in, in Chile, but kind of not, not, to, not to dwell on that for, for too long. That links into kind of another, I think, issue that both Europe and the US will have to deal with if they want to re-engage with Latin America, which is trying to look, look at things like raw materials, but also focus a bit on diversifying the economic relationship. So one thing that's happened in Latin America since really the 1980s is that the region has undergone quite a bit of deindustrialization and has become more reliant on commodities exports. Now, what this has kind of led to are these, it's something that you see in like almost almost any commodity exporting country you could care to name. Like you have these boom and bust cycles, things go amazingly for the economy when commodity prices rise, when there's a recession or something and they crash, it hits these countries really, really hard. And the result is, you know, political instability. So, uh, I, I mean, we probably all remember like in the 2000s, like the pink tide, you know, all these kind of leftish leaders coming to power in, in South America, you know, like Lula's first presidency in Brazil, like Rafael Correa in, um, in Ecuador, Evo Morales in, in Bolivia. And then, of course, these leaders have then kind of been undone, really, to a certain extent by the end of the pre-financial crisis commodity super cycle. So that's something else to think about is, okay, well, you know, if we're going to try and, I guess, belatedly rebuild this economic and geopolitical relationship within the region, how do we also kind of try to work with these countries in a way that ensures a more diversified and balanced economic relationship and therefore more political stability in the region. Yeah. Now, this requires a lot of investment, uh, certainly as part of the uh, of the mix. Susanna, you had a story this morning about the Green Deal and about the rather Eurocentric attitudes we have on green policies and forwarding an argument that I thought was quite interesting. Could you just explain that to us, what the argument was? Yeah, actually, the, this is based on a, a column that uh, Eric Lebouchy um, had in Lizico, and I could fully agree with that. We are so introverted. We are looking at so many aspects and so get so, so lost in details about targets. We had a very ambitious uh, Fit for 55 agenda, and at that time, it looked really uh, like it was three years ago we, we came out with that. And it, at that time, it didn't look like there, had, there were much economic consequences 
it look like it was feasible and uh, economically. Now we are in a totally different world, and therefore the assessment of what this, uh, what it takes to actually achieve these goals is a different one. And that pitches the ones who say, well, it's not economically reasonable against those who say, we have to do it no matter what. Jean-Pierre Zanifieri, he, he dished out a report saying that uh, on the on the on the current basis, if we have to invest, we we shift from consumption to investment. About one percent of consumption all of a sudden has to go towards investment. We have to change our our models um, away from productivity uh, generating ones uh, to actually buying in, in. And he came up with a number saying instead of being neutral and actually costs the economy is three to four percent of GDP. In a time where we actually need the opposite, so he compared it to the uh, to the oil price shock in the seventies, where we had huge inflationary uh, effects afterwards. So uh, and not much um, economic growth, where we actually need to focus more on rising productivity uh, rather than looking for how on earth we could actually replicate mining and how we could find mining anywhere in Europe. Also, given the backlash that this might not be such an easy uh, easy case, where uh, we've seen that in Germany, we've seen that in, in Portugal, where they try to open open up mines uh, already since 2018 and have difficulties to do so because of the environmental impact, but also because the societies are not really ready to, to accept back mining as part of the strategic aut- autonomy in raw materials. So uh, this is this is part of the raw materials, making deals with countries where there is already mining in place. Uh, and, and it goes back to uh, raise the importance. The other thing is um, we as uh, Europeans, that the, the whole it draws us so in in our attention that we sort of uh, at the back of it is the assumption that this is a role model that we're going to lead this efforts in uh, in hitting the decarbonization efforts but to my understanding it's a false competition because we really talk about the public good it's clean air is a, is a public good it's not something you can divide uh, and and compete for it makes no sense if we are already leading in decarbonization compared to the US and China why should we focus all of our energies and and finance on um, becoming even more ahead of the curve rather than actually looking at those and helping others like in countries in Africa or um, India, because those ones are the ones that matter in order to actually get to the target on a global level. Yeah, you, you, you made this nice uh, sentence that this is not a competition you want to win. And uh, I, yeah. you know, that's that's exactly the the. The, the point. No. Yeah, yeah. Coming coming into that in term in terms of it, I mean, I think the issue when you're looking at these countries and emissions is not so much what they're emitting now, but more how to pair decarbonization with um, ongoing economic development in these parts of the world. So, I, I mean, if you look at these countries, they 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 do at the moment emit per capita much less than your average European country, even though we're we're in a relatively good place compared to say the U.S. and China here in Europe. So, I, I mean, for instance, um, if you look at Indonesia, they in 2019 per capita emissions were about half that of France, right? And France is a relatively good performer within the EU on emissions per capita. If you if you then go to sub-Saharan Africa, so if you look at Kenya, for instance, I mean, Kenya's emissions per capita in 2019 were about a tenth that of France. So at the moment, the you know, a lot of these countries are not emitting very much. Or, you know, again, you look at Vietnam, which is actually relatively industrialized and uses a lot of coal in its power mix. They still do not have the same level of per capita emissions as France does. So because these countries are just less economically developed and and their citizens um, kind of produce and consume less, basically, they're still quite a bit behind the West in terms of those emissions. However, the problem is going to be, well, obviously, you kind of 
th- th- these countries need to balance concerns around climate change with their interest in economically developing. And this is frequently a refrain that you hear from them where they say, okay, this green transition is all well and good, but what does it mean for our ability to actually secure better livelihoods for our citizens? And is it fair that kind of in, in the West, in Europe and in North America and East Asia, you've been able to adopt this fossil fuel heavy development model You've kind of then produced all these carbon emissions and then you go away and say, well, we, ne- we need to deal with this now and too bad for you. I guess one of the things is here, one of the key things is here, innovation. I mean, we Europeans, we look at regulation and we look at uh, how to how to uh, basically tell the consumers what sort of energy source they're going to have to take in. Like the Germans prescribe, say, you have to get your heat pumps in by 2030, I think. All these kind of things are looking at on the from the demand side at the issue rather than the supply side, like the Americans uh, with their massive subsidies into uh, developing innovative. Of, uh, methods uh, into in green technologies that eventually lead to lower prices for t- green technologies that can later be applied and uh, afforded by the consumers. In these kind of areas, if you look at innovation, then you could actually put much more effort in and, and also develop uh, partnerships with, uh, with these countries. I mean, I think our um, at the EU level, the, the carbon emissions uh, are at, at the same level as, as India. But we know if India is going to grow, uh, the, 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 the carbon emissions will be massively increasing. Exactly right. And I mean, India's emissions are so big because it has a huge population. If you look at their emissions per capita, again, I'm, I mean, their emissions per capita are somewhere between a third and a half of France's as of 2019. So there is a substantial amount of room for India's carbon emissions to grow. Now, granted, India is not doing nothing about this. For instance, um, they, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, they've announced a moratorium on new coal-fired power plants, which is actually quite forward-looking of them. But yeah, it, you know, kind, kind of coming back onto that demand-side versus supply-side thing, a lot of the theory behind the demand-side measures was that if you did them and if you gave everybody enough advance notice of what you were doing, you were going to be able to have the supply-side follow along because companies would adjust their investment strategies and stuff like that. Now, to a certain extent, that has worked. Like Investment in clean energy technology has grown in the EU. However, I, I think it's also probably fair to say that there has not been enough on the supply side, both in terms of investment, but also just in terms of dealing with regulatory bottlenecks. Although it's not quite as bad here, I think, as it is in the US, permitting is still quite a big problem in Europe. And that's an area where I think governments have been too slow to deal with so far. So yeah, I, I, you know, there, there is a bit more of a link between the su- demand side and the supply side, and it's not mutually exclusive. But at the same time, I, I agree that not enough has been done. And, and kind of on in- innovation specifically, I think it's also a matter of us looking at what is going on in other parts of the world and also kind of learning for that from them. Uh, if you look, for instance, at say some of the things that various different people in sub-Saharan Africa have tried to do with, you know, um, off-grid clean energy technology, a, a lot of it's quite clever, right? Yeah. And we could probably look at that and say, well, you know, you're trying to kind of generate clean energy in a very, very difficult environment to do so. And if you're somehow managing to make it work, there's probably a thing or two that we can take away from that and we can kind of build into what we do. Especially in the south of Europe, we find more and more drier climates and less rain. And uh, how to do agriculture in these kind of uh, circumstances is going to be a challenge where we can actually learn some lessons from African countries. Oh, oh tons. And yeah, on, on things too, for instance, like integrating technology into that as well. There, there's there's lots of really there's been lots of really good thinking that's gone on there and um again as you say 
there's there's a lot that we can um, take away from it. But I think I think it would really to kind of broaden this out, it would really require a change in perspective. And I think it would require a step change in the way that we think about our economic model. And that is not something which I see that level of desire for, right? No, and it's, it would also require a very different European Commission because the Commission has nailed it, this policy to the mast. It's the essence of Ursula von der Leyen's policy, the Green Deal. This was her flagship policy. She could have chosen us. We've been arguing. We're very boring people. We talk about things like capital markets union, but we think this is probably would have been a more successful one because the capital markets Union would have actually provided the finance for innovation in a way that no public sector banking institution like the European Investment Bank or the you know, various national equivalents uh, do. We had another discussion this week on the question of technological neutrality, which is also linked to the supply side uh, issue that you've, you've raised here. The debate has come up in the German coalition, it's come up recently in the French position on nuclear energy. They have now reverted back to a position. They've reopened an agreement at EU level in order to ensure that the nuclear energy is not being discriminated against, um, which, as we talked about last week, this is in the context of uh, hydrogen production later. So the the idea of technological neutrality is something the Americans have embraced. Now, I've written to, to this week elsewhere that, that the American strategy also has many problems. It's not it's not that America has overtake Europe and you know, the, the problem of, of not engaging with the rest of the world is as much of a problem, if not more of a problem for the Americans than it is for the Europeans. It is the supply chain security and all that cannot be achieved at domestic level, not even in the United States. Uh, we, all, we, all need partner, we all need partners for this. But what appears to be winning or the, 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 the argument that appears to be winning as we're going further down the green agenda and as people are counting the costs, counting the costs in terms of GDP, in terms of inflation, in terms of, you know, social distribution and the welfare effects that some of these policies had, you know, the debate is particularly strong in Germany, where which a country that is a bit further ahead in this than others. I think there is now a rethink going on. That's certainly the case in Germany. Robert Harbeck is the engineer of the of this of this policy. He's had a few setbacks. He had to let go of his most trusted uh, state secretary, who was the driver of this policy. He, he uh, you know, the heat he, pump. Yeah, uh, well, that was that was the the heat pump legislation issue came up uh, uh, this week when when it became clear that the FDP is blocking. The passage of this law in the Bundestag. I mean, there's now a huge coalition row on on this on this matter. So they will they won't they won't agree the passage this summer. So it'll happen in the autumn. So and they want to introduce an awful lot of clauses to protect people. I think one FDP MP said uh, they need to actually tear up 60 to 80 percent of the entire legislation and basically rewrite it from scratch. Yes, you can see what what that will do to the relationship between the coalition partners. This is a key, this is a flagship green policy proposal. So there's an awful lot of pushback happening against it as people are realizing that this is costly, not just in terms of fiscal costs, but in terms of uh, the way it affects people in actual house owners, for example, poorer people are much more, much worse affected than richer people because it is a, it is, it's kind of a poll tax, basically. It's a very similar effect because everybody has to have a heat pump and, you know, everybody pays for it. It's just the same, you know, the, the, the thing costs the same thing. It's larger houses require larger heat pumps, but it is a fair, it's pretty much a flat tax. And if your house has a value of, say, if, if you're, you know, I live in a not so desirable area of Germany in the east or in certain pockets of the west. The house can be cost as little, even a nice house can cost as little as a hundred thousand euros, and it's quite possible that 
the heat pump installation alone will cost fifty thousand euros with uh, with all the the technical with all, fittings. With all the all, all the, um, yeah, so the massive um, um, you know this is a massive hit and it will and as some people calculate it will reduce the value of the houses so there are social implications that cannot easily be feathered by fiscal policy because you cannot compensate it's very hard to compensate the losers for the from this because the poorer house owners are not the poorest people in the country it's something it is a privileged class among the poor <laughs> the poor it's a middle it's a, it's a sort of a lower middle class issue not your classic distribution issue and and it will cause all sorts of also legal issues when you compensate one group and not not another we, we've had similar debates on the industrial electricity price that that, that Harbeck wants sort of as, as discounted electricity price for, for manufacturing companies all these run into huge political problems on I, I would assume at the, at the end of the road also into legal problems and that's going to be very difficult uh, yeah, it, it is. And I think as well, the politics of it are going to continue to be very difficult because you are kind of st- stuck between an unstoppable force and an immovable object at this point. Obviously, at the moment, there's been this backlash going on, and that's not just been in Germany. You, if you want to trace it back, you, of course, had the Gilets Jaunes in France when a, a Macron tried to introduce the petrol tax at that point. You, you had the recent success of the um, of the farmer citizens movement in the Netherlands, which was that was specifically related to nitrogen emissions rather than decarbonization, but still um, backlash against environmental regulation and and so on. And but the di- the difficulty is on the other side, you're still going to see a growing political salience of environmental issues, right? You, you know. It, in this year, we've already experienced, of course, these droughts that are currently um, badly hitting Spain um, in, in Andalusia. We have seen some very nasty flooding in Italy. We are almost definitely going to, as has become customary every single year, see heat waves across Europe. And when these things happen, at that point, people will be obviously talking about climate change and there will be pressure from other sections of society to do something about that too. You're going to be stuck in a situation where people want to do something about it, but also don't want to bear the costs. And you're also in that situation because we have really, I think, put off preparing for this. And in some ways, it's a it's a real collective failure on all of our parts um, in, in Europe and in North America and in the industrialized world. We've known about anthropogenic climate change for such a long time. We have known that it was going to be a serious issue and that we needed to do something about it. And we've just continually prevaricated on doing something about it. Now we've gotten to the point where the impact of climate change is starting to become noticeable and we are running out of time to comprehensively deal with the issue without it causing very, very serious problems further into the future. But at the same time, the costs of it are going to also be substantial. And, and that's something that there's going to be a lot of political opposition to. So really, we're, we're almost kind of now starting to enter a situation where it feels like there are no good options. One of the polarizing things is because it's alarming uh, realization, oh, we are in the middle of something that we cannot control. There is definitely this sense of wanting back, taking back control, which can have all sorts of uh, flavors. Climate activists uh, can get more extreme to one end, but we also saw the backlash uh, from the conservatives, for example, who now seem to take the climate change agenda as a, as a target actually to make their case uh, on, on behalf of farmers readjust their voters portfolio in a significant sense um, that we also will see 
shift in politics. I think Wolfgang, you wrote about it. What should we expect? Do we have a more would conservatives then want to pull into the other direction, say enough is enough, let's stop the regulation here in Europe, let's provide more planning security. So this is what we stand for, and therefore shift or split even more the voters into more radical ends on the, over the climate. Yeah. Oh, there, are, there are a whole number of effects. I mean, you know, the economic effects is few, less growth and possibly more inflation, sort of level effects that, that will coincide as our sort of supply security gets, gets weaker. The other factor is political polarization. The center has, I mean, it was a remarkable period, the period from 2000 to 2020, which we sort of thought, you know, characterized in Germany by endless grand coalition governments, but also similar things happening elsewhere. You know, the UK didn't have coalition governments except for one term, but it was broadly a consensus in policy that happened in that period uh, about, you know, there was a sort of a consensus that was largely centrist, uh, whatever you may think of, of, of individual parties or parties leaders, but this was a a broad, I mean, the difference between Labour and, and the Conservative in the grand scheme of things, except for Brexit, were not that, that pronounced and on Brexit dividing lines ran across both parties. And it's, you know, we're seeing this definitely. I mean, in Germany, we're seeing the rise of the AFD. It's now polling at 16, 17, 18 percent ahead of the Greens. Definitely now ahead of the Greens. The Greens are now back to their, or falling back to their core support, which is the political consequence of their, of, of basically them implementing their policy. There's no longer the illusion of what, what it may mean. It's no longer the, the aspiring metropolitan dweller who thinks green is cool until they realize whether it's really for them. And now they have. And people are, very clear about this, whether they are green or whether they're not green. And still, we find still the same core supporters are green that they used to be. So the Green Party is not going to be the government party, the leader of the government. The Green Party in Germany is a party with a core support, I'd say about 13, 14%. Uh, it will not fall much below that, um, and but it is pretty close to that to that floor. The S- the FDP is close to that floor as well, with its seven or eight percent. It is stabilized. It's still hankering to the national conservative level, and the F- AFD has now sort of become the main second main force on the right. It's obviously on the far right. I my expectation is that it will become increasingly difficult in Germany to form governments in the future as the, as the you know as sort of this political realignment happens. The last elections or before the last elections, people talked about six or seven coalition options. And that's sort of an arithmetic coincidence that it happened. This is becoming more difficult, not because of arithmetic, but because Greens and FDP have realized now that they are governing together, that they are actually the polar ends of the political debate in the center. And uh, they will not want to go into another coalition with one another. They are basically the, you know, the, 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 the arch rivals in, 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 in politics. And there may be different constellations. Grand coalitions will always be possible. Maybe it's grand coalitions plus another party. But that basically means that most of the center is in government. And most of the, you know, the left and the right is outside government. And that is not a sustainable balance because that means that the center will ultimately lose, you know, opposition parties eventually gain at the expense of government. So at the, at the, at, there will come a point at which it will become impossible to form coalitions or, or, or so, inc- or, or, or not worth the bother. So my expectation is that there will eventually be coalitions of the right, as there are in, say, in the Netherlands and other countries. That includes the AFD in a junior capacity, uh, or maybe supply arrangements of the kind that the Tories had with the, the DUP, in a slightly more distant uh, relationship, mi- minority governments, things that haven't happened in the past. 
but the era of the sort of the, the centrist consensus government is over. And this is one of the, the consequences of all of this, what we discussed today. It's, 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 um, Angela Merkel represented that period of consensus, centrist consensus government, probably more than anybody. That's over now. Yeah, that, that period's over. I, I mean, kind of taking taking this back to the themes that we were discussing before, I think as well what this emphasizes is the, the interconnectedness between all of these different policy areas and how they also impact domestic politics. I, I think another kind of recurring feature of our political narratives over the years, um, as well as this kind of dominance of the center and these various grand coalitions and stuff, has also been the kind of bifurcation of domestic and foreign policy. That has kind of been, I think, almost ironic as uh, globalization has gone on and and our economies have actually become more interdependent. At the same time, the political rhetoric has shifted more towards like a split between what's happening outside of your country and what's happening inside of it. However, now it's very clear that these issues are kind of interconnected with each other. Like it's impossible to talk about decarbonization and climate change without talking about your relationship with the rest of the world. And it is increasingly becoming a polarizing domestic issue that will make or break governments. So it then all becomes inter in, interlinked. And uh, I think as well in our political discourse, we have to try and conceptualize these things in a different way. Yeah, I think this is probably not the last time we will have discussed this. On this note, let's wrap this up. Thank you for listening. And until next